Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We're continuing our series on the Old Testament books of Kings. Today we introduce one of the most significant and exciting characters in all the Bible, the prophet Eliyahu, better known to us in the English-speaking world as Elijah. And we're going to try to look past the religious conflict in Israel to see the unseen spiritual warfare that it represents. We begin in 1 Kings chapter 16. This is, this is exciting stuff. We are dealing with the story of Elijah. This, we've been talking about some points that we've made so far is that when we're reading Kings, we need to keep in mind, first of all, that all of this is not about the Kings. It's about Christ. We've, I've also made the point that what we've got, what we have in 1 Kings is the working out on earth of a spiritual <laughs> warfare that is taking place in the heavenly places. At this point in the story, that heavenly war breaks out as a shooting war on earth and becomes explicit. Things that were hidden in terms of the spiritual conflicts now become explicit, now become very, very visible. And the person of Elijah is... There are... Four figures in the Old Testament that are referred to as points of reference in the New Testament on which everything turns. Abraham. Moses. David. And Elijah. How important is Elijah to Christ? Malachi says before Christ comes, Elijah has to come first. When Jesus came, he took his disciples away to Caesarea Philippi. Interestingly enough, in an area that's close to the shooting ground that Elijah's dealing with in the story we're going to get to here in a little while. And he gets them to a Gentile city and says, who do people say that I am? And they said, some people say you're John the Baptist. Second answer, some people say you're Elijah. There were reasons why they thought that. Elijah is a remarkable, remarkable prophet. Everything, the whole, everything pivots in, the, in this part of the story on, with the coming of Elijah. Elijah is a dramatic figure and he changes the nature of the spiritual warfare that is taking place. And he changes the nature of the religious war that takes place on earth, which is the expression of a spiritual warfare taking place in heaven. One of the things that is particularly uh, exceptionable, exceptional about Elijah is that throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are the mouthpiece of God. They speak what God sees. They speak what God is declaring. They tell what God is going to do. But there were two prophets in the Old Testament who didn't just tell what God was doing, they implemented it. One of them was Moses, and the other one was Elijah. R.G. Lee, in his great sermon, Payday Someday, describes Elijah as a great spiritual and physical athlete. And we're going to see that. I also love his description of Ahab, that vile toad who squatted on the throne of the nation. At the end of chapter 17, let's, uh, or chapter 16, let's pick up where it says here, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Remember, Asa was a godly king. God was pleased with Asa. He did not for reasons that were not specified. He did not take down the high places, 
But in every other way, he, his heart was God's. He had a heart for God. And in that he reflected his great-great-grandfather, David. I believe it was his great-great-grandfather. He just called his father David, you know. Asa was a good king. But there was continual warfare and conflict. Not a hot war, but just kind of a continuing cold war, lots of little skirmishes and stuff like that between Israel and Judah, those two kingdoms. And Ahab, the son of Omri. Omri is the king who came over. He took over. He was a very capable general who took over Israel after the death, the suicide death by burning the palace down on top of yourself of Zimri, who had been king for a week. And <laughs> God's review of him is, doesn't matter how long he was there, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> anyway. Uh, now, Omri was a fairly, as the world counts it, a successful king. The other kingdoms around. The kingdom of Assyria looked at Omri. They looked at his, his territory and they recognized this is, the, this is the territory of Omri. And so Omri's got a little dynasty going here. His son is Ahab. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Okay, a good long run. Uh, that's comparatively, compared to these other reigns of the kings of Israel, that's a pretty long reign. God must be blessing him. God must be pleased with him. You are wrong. Material success does not equal the blessing of God. And that is one of the points that's being made in 1 Kings. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That is considerable. Up until this point, the reference point of all evil was Jeroboam. Now, and all those other, other kings, they continued the sins of Jeroboam. Ahab surpassed them. What did he do? Well, it has a lot to do with who he decided to make the, uh, his number one wife. And that was Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, the king of Tyre. What was so bad about that? As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He created an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days... Uh, okay, so we've got this. Now, what we have now is a situation... I, I looked at this, and I remember when I read this and saw that it was like... It was the, the way this is described, it's like a Western. You've got the corrupt sheriff in town. And he's taking over, he's taking, and you've got to understand the corruption of Baalism. And understand what really Baalism is about. Baalism is the essence of humanistic pursuit. Baalism really is not, poly, uh, polytheism is not theism. Polytheism is humanism. Belief in many gods is actually belief that you are God. And polytheism is all about being in control of, every, of all these other forces and everything like this. And Baalism is a nature religion, like most of these religions, uh, most of these polytheistic religions are. It's nature religion, and it's an attempt to gain control of nature through various magical and natural means. In doing so, now, the, the particular myth of Baal is that Baal is in control of the rain and the storms and all that. Baal is the, is the thunder storm god. He's the one who brings the storms. He's the bring, one who brings the, the, the early and the latter rain. He's the one who is crucial to agriculture because he's the one who brings the rain. Problem is, we can't have Baal all year round because... 
Every year, Baal gets captured by the god of death, Mot, who, who drags him into the realm of death and keeps him there. It's, it's the same kind of myth that shows up in Greece, in Rome, and, in, uh, and throughout Mesopotamia. It's just this, this myth that the god who brings fertility is brought into a place where you know he's kept captive for part of the year and what you've got to do and the whole thing is to get into the cycle of it and to plead with him to come back and to return and do all these sacrifices, all these things and finally we'll persuade you know we'll, we'll get him set free from the death god and he'll be released again and then he'll come and shower us with blessing and that shower with blessing is in sometimes very crude sensual terms Baalism is about the confluence and use of religion to accomplish three ends, which are entirely humanistic. Number one, at the top, power. Baalism is a religion of power. It's being in control. It's being in control of the people, being in control of the economy, being in control of all of these things. The second thing is the concentration of wealth, the selfish concentration of wealth into the hands of a few. And the third thing is the mollification of the masses of people through sex. Baalism is pornographic, and pornography is a huge part of Baalism. Baalism is sensual, and sensuality is a huge part of Baal worship. Baalism is, well, It's all of these things and more. And it used to be thought that it was too crude to even describe. But now in scholarly circles, I use that word scholarly with... Liberality. Yeah. <laughs> we need to reconsider this. I mean, there is, there is a lot that we could learn from Baalism. So... Jezebel. Up until this point, the, the religion of, that Jeroboam had planted was basically, it was, it was idolatrous, but it was still based on the idea that there is one God of Israel, and that's Jehovah. And what we have here at Bethel and at Dan are shrines and temples to Jehovah. We just have him represented as this golden calf. That way we can get a better fix on what it is and who it is that we're worshiping. It just kind of helps our devotion, you know. But now, we've got a complete turn. Jezebel is, not, is impatient with it. See, you've still got these pesky commandments that you've got to obey. We don't have those in Baalism. Baalism Law and morality is a whole lot easier to manipulate by the people in power. What's wrong is what we decide is what's wrong. Law is what we make it to be. So Jezebel comes in and brings that, that whole thing in, and Ahab inaugurates. He doesn't just permit. Now, Baalism was already there. It was already working. Ahab, remember I talk about the power of precedent? Ahab brought in a precedent that established the worship of Baal for the people of God. Remember that little commandment where it says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That jealousy is about to break out. And this is where it starts looking like a western. You've got a corrupt sheriff in town. And he and his wicked wife are running things. And people are suffering, but they are kept satisfied by lots of liquor and lots of and lots of loose morality. And they, you know, that's that's what keeps them quiet. That's what keeps. But everything, you know, you've got the rich taking over the lands of the poor. You've got uh, all all kinds of corruption and and sinning going on. And then here comes a fellow riding in. Nobody really knows who this guy is. He just shows up. 
Seriously, the Clint Eastwood movie, Pale Rider, <laughs> uses directly this imagery. It uses language from the book of Revelation, but the imagery that is used, basically it is a, what Clint Eastwood did in order to tell that story was he used the Elijah story. He just comes in and nobody knows, I mean, it just shows up. He's without any introduction at all. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead. We still don't really know where that is. We just know that that was over in the frontier side. He's just, a, he's just a fellow coming over from cattle country. Seriously, he's a cowboy. That's, I mean, this is, that's all. We don't really even know where Tishbe exactly was. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead came in, walked up, and the king's having a barbecue or something like that. He just comes up to the king and says, I just thought you might like to know it ain't going to rain until I say so. See you. <laughs> and he walks out. And, you know, you, you might think, you know, the old, the old time, you know, biblical epic movies, you know, they'd have it to where everybody would, oh, you know, there'd be a nut. I think it was just ignored. Who's this nut? I don't know, you know, you what we find out a little bit later is that Jezebel had initiated a persecution of the prophets of Jehovah. And she had determined to kill all of them, to exterminate them or to drive them out of the land. So this fellow comes in, he wipes his feet on, off on, the, on Elijah's nice clean carpet or Ahab's nice clean carpet and says hey Baal ain't in charge of the rain I'm in charge of it because I'm from the Lord and then he walks out look at what he says now this phrase is crucial this phrase is crucial now this is a familiar oath We've seen it before. We've seen it especially uh, in Joshua, in Judges, in 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel. We see this oath showing up, but here, and we've seen it a couple of times already in 1 Kings, but here it becomes the turning point. This becomes the whole point of Elijah's ministry. Look at the oath that he gives to Ahab. He, he doesn't just tell him this. He swears it. Look at the oath that he swears. What does he say? What are the words that he uses? The words are crucial. What are they? As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. And whom I serve. And whom I serve. Those, every word of that is significant. That is a formal oath. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand and whom I serve. That is the whole point that Elijah's ministry is going to make. He lives. Baal exists because you, you want him to. He exists as a function of your society, as a function of your religion. Baal exists in that kind of a way. But Yahweh lives. And I stand before him and I'm accountable to him for everything that I say. So every message that I give, he's going to hold me to account for. And if I do this wrong, I'm a goner. And whom I serve, this is my allegiance. And as the Lord lives, there shall be no rain until I say so. And then he's out. Who was that masked man? I don't know. That was the lone stranger. <laughs> and he goes off. And then God tells him, turn left here. <laughs> Go out to this place. And he goes to a place where they are not going to look for him. You know why they're not going to look for him? Because, first of all, his absence isn't really going to be noted until, you know, I mean, it's going to be months before they figure out. It's, it hasn't rained. We've had, as a matter of fact, it's going to be 
a year, another year goes by, and then an, several months after that year, and the normal cycle hasn't gone, and this drought becomes so extremely severe, increasingly severe. You talk about a burn ban. Mm -hmm. Not even any dew. dew. It is so dry. It is so dry. There is no dew point. <laughs> the dew point is like zero. There is no dew. There is no moisture. There's, it's just everything. All of the moisture is being just sucked up. Now, understand the suffering that this is beginning to create. And the stress... It takes a while before the stress level begins to really reach the king. But when the stress level reaches the king, he starts sending out search parties for Elijah. Find this guy. Find out what magic he has, what he's done. Find out there's, there's a trick. I know there's a trick, but we've got to find this guy. He sends out search parties for Elijah. And Elijah can't be found. You know why they can't find him? Because God has directed him to a place where it is absolutely the last place that they're going to look. He sends them to a desert. But there's a de it, it's a desert that has one little source of water. The, he sends it out to a, a remote spot. There's no place to get food. And there's one little source of water, one brook that's running through here. He's got drinking water. So, But how does he get food? The ravens. Ravens feeding. Ravens bring him food. Now... Remember, you've got a lot of hearkening back to the, mo to the story of the, the Exodus. Moses in the wilderness. You've got, you've got all this going on. God is... But there's not manna. Ravens are not clean animals, no. But he doesn't have to eat the ravens. He just bring, they bring, no, the ravens serve God as Elijah does. And God... Notice what it says there. Look at what it says. If, if it... If your version is a truly accurate, it says God commanded the ravens. Yeah, yeah, command. Okay, He commanded the ravens. Now I don't know if you if you've ever tried to command any ravens. You, you can say, "Get out of my yard!" But you know, I mean, you can. Have you ever, you know, just? Don't <laughs> 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 work much. No. And look at what, and Elijah ate better than the people of Israel in the wilderness. God gave them manna. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. They fed him twice a day. After a while, the brook dried up. You little stars. After a while, the brook dried up. Notice this. The brook dried up. That is not Elijah's cue to leave. What is the, Elijah's cue? Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. That's when I, Elijah's cue is. See how he serves the Lord. He is determined he's going to do what God tells him. Uh, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to, to Sidon. This is Queen Jezebel's territory. This is her home territory. This is her home turf. So go up to Jezebel's county. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Same word. Now you read on down in the story, there's no apparent consciousness that this widow had a command from God to feed Elijah. You go on down in the story, he goes there, and she is putting together, she's putting together literally the last supper for herself and her little boy. This is all that there is. She is using up the last of the flour, the last of the oil. She's going to make a little cake, a little cake of bread. She's going to cook that on her stone hearth, and then they're going to split it up, they're going to eat it, and then they're going to die. That is the fatalism in this woman's attitude. She shows no consciousness of having been commanded by the Lord to do anything. See this Notice, I mean, this is so important. Jesus may, points out what took place in this story. Elijah goes and he imposes on, of all people, the widow who's getting ready to make her last meal. Why? God said to. God sure is rude. 
Oh, God better hurry up. This is, there's so much story. Great job. Wow. (laughs) And Elijah, of course, tells her, tell you what, you do that, but before you make that last supper for you and your little boy, make me a little supper first. Okay. Elijah does this not because he is rude, not because he's selfish, not because he's hungry. He does it because God has told him, I've commanded this widow. If God gives a command, God gives the provision. He knows what's going to happen. He may not know how it's going to happen, but he knows God's going to provide. Now, notice all of this takes place. This is one of those stories that's used by the name it and claim it people. Beware. You've got to understand the context. There's a spiritual war going on here. And this is the point that Jesus made about this story. He said, it was not, there were a lot of people who were starving in Israel. And Elijah went to the home of one widow outside of Israel, and she was fed. This is in the context of a war. This is a war zone, folks. And God is making a point. In this one little seemingly unseen place, God is making a point, and He's making it first of all to the prophet. I'm the provider. I live. I'm the one not only who brings rain, I'm the one who creates food. I'm the one who creates wealth. I am the one who gives every good and perfect gift. I am the giver of that. And there is no other. Let these other people, while they are serving the bales, find out that the bales are impotent when the time of emergency comes. And you understand that God is the one who's in control of the emergency. Did you know that? So Elijah has the woman make a little cake of bread. And the remarkable thing is, she says, all right, here it is. Bon appetit. And then she goes, makes that. And then she goes back to the cupboard and finds out that that jar of flour is full. And that container of oil is full. And they never go to the store. They never make it to the market. As long as Elijah stays in that house, they never lack for food. Because God provides. But we're in the war zone. God has put them... Don't misunderstand. God has put them in a very uncomfortable position. And this woman is hiding a man who is the most wanted man in that part of the world right now. I don't know what an ancient equivalent of a wanted poster was, but I'm sure that they had faxes about, you know, all over the place. About Elijah. Hmm. Look at the verse that Elijah said in verse 13, by the way, as he comforts her. He says, don't fear. Do not fear. And he tells her what the Lord says. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now remember, he's talking to a Baalite woman. This woman is not an Israelite and she is not a worshiper of Yahweh. But this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And yeah, it is going to rain again. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And then after the sun, then then there's a thing happened. A little boy dies. Verse 15. 
I want you to see what she says. His illness was so severe there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? That phrase becomes you. You remember the prophet back a little while ago who was only known as the man of God? And now she calls Elijah a man of God. What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. The NIV says you've come to remind me of my sin, but that's not what it says. It says you've caused to bring my sin to remembrance. You know what she's saying? So you don't you realize what you've done here? You've brought the light of God into my house and it has lit up my sin. And you've brought my sin to God's attention. That's what she's saying. She is under conviction of sin here. The death of her son has brought her conviction of her sin. But right now she's not, you know, she's bitter about it because it's my sin has broken out against my son. My child is dying because I'm a sinner. Look at what Elijah does. He said to him, give me your son. He took, her from, took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord. Look at Elijah here. You think a prophet always has it all together, right? Prophet always has it. Prophet always knows ahead of time what God's getting ready to do. Look at what he says. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Those don't sound like believing words to me, do you? Do they do you? But look at what he does. Take the whole context in. Look at what he does. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. We're getting to shouting ground. Why did Elijah lie down on the boy? There are, not once, but three times. Why did he do that? Now, there are some who say, well, this is a resuscitation maneuver. And he's letting the warmth from his body spread to the warmth of, you know, and just, and this is, this is something, he, there is nothing about this that has anything to do with mechanical resuscitation. Nothing. So why does he do this? This is what intercession is. When you're interceding for someone and God has put this one on your heart, their suffering becomes yours. And their problem becomes yours. And the ache in their heart becomes your ache. And Elijah is interceding, and he's not interceding for the widow. He's interceding for the, for the little boy. God, don't break out against the boy because his mother's a sinner. And he is putting him, he is literally putting himself in the boy's place. <coughs> and yet at the same time, he is in the place of God, putting himself in God's place. He is the intercessor. He is standing between the sinner and God, standing between the sufferer and God, and putting himself in the midst and saying, Oh God, use me to bring your life. Here's where the shouting ground is. He is a type of Christ. This is what Jesus did. When he died for us on a cross, and his body was laid in a tomb. He was putting himself between us and death. Yeah. You can shout. Brace, 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 brace. Mm. And so Elijah is the a type of Christ in so many ways. And in this, this is where he shows that. And all of this, and all of this glory is being shown to an obscure widow and her little boy. 
that nobody would ever hear about unless, except it had been put in the Bible. <laughs> but it got put in the Bible until now we get to read about it. You think the three times is symbolic of Israel? Yeah. Yeah, not the least of which is. Well, there's three days in, in the. But I think Elijah. You know why I think Elijah did it three times? Because the first time and the second time it didn't happen. So he did it the third time. Don't give up. Jesus said, when you pray, don't quit. Mm. So much, so much. And Elijah, he brought him, then he brought down, the boy down to his, to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know. Now, this was a testimony to her. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. As if she didn't know before, but now she really knows. It's a little bit short of saying, now I know that the Lord is the only, only God that there is. But... Now she knows he, this guy's for real. And that comes to us as a testimony back to this. Now Elijah, after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Three years of drought. It's pretty unheard of, even in this dry region. Three years of drought. He said, go show yourself to Ahab and I'll rain on the earth. Now that seems kind of straightforward. But this is kind of complicated considering that Elijah is the most sought after man. They're after him to get him. They're, after, they're trying to bring him in. Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. This is Obadiah. He's somebody who is really, I mean, you talk about somebody who's caught in a difficult situation. He is. He serves the Lord. And he hides out the prophets that Jezebel is trying to kill. Feeds them. But he's still on the king's staff. He wouldn't be able to do these things if he wasn't on the king's staff. But he's in a very risky position here. And Ahab said to Obadiah, by the way, you know what his name means? Obadiah? Servant of Yahweh. Go through the land to all this. And Ahab said, I want you to go scout the land. I want, I'm, we, we need to find grass and save the horses and mules alive, not lose some of the animals. This is what Ahab's concerned about. The people are dying in his country, and he's worried about his livestock. And as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. I mean, I, I mean there's just no... No getting around just the wonderful way that, the you know, the, behold, Elijah, I mean, it just, he, he's going, he, he's doing his job, he's scouting out, and then he comes around the corner, and there's Elijah sitting there. <laughs> and he said, is it, is that you, my Lord Elijah? He said, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He says, wait, what have I done that you, are you, you're trying to get me out of the way? Yeah, I mean, I did it. And he goes through. Now, this is what's interesting to me, the way that the story is told, because we've just been told what, Eli, what Obadiah did. Just to emphasize that, Obadiah goes through the whole story of what he did about hiding the prophets and feeding the prophets and all of that and says, so I did all that. And, you know, now the Lord is, you know, doing this. So this, what this tells us, the writer of Kings is indicating to us how much of an alarming situation this was and what an alarming thing that Elijah is having Obadiah do and how much risk that God is putting Obadiah in and how much he's feeling the tension and the strain. Among other things, that's just good storytelling. So he comes in and says, no. And Elijah says, now just, you just calm down. And I said, no, no, no. I want an oath. I want you to swear by the Lord that you are going to be here when I get back. Because if I tell my, the king that you're here and you're not here when I get back, he said, no. Calm down. As the Lord lives, I will be here. 
Okay. So Obadiah goes and he brings Ahab. Look at what Ahab says. Look at what Ahab calls him. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you? Is it you, troubler of Israel? That's a significant phrase. That's the same phrase. That's the same term that was used back of Achan in the days of Joshua when Achan took treasure from Jericho and hid it and brought defeat to the Israelites. He was a troubler of Israel. He wasn't just a sinner. His sins had troubling consequences to everybody. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Ahab has the gall to call Elijah the troubler of Israel. And Elijah does lose his cool. He simply says, um, I've not troubled Israel. You have. And your father's house because you abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So we need to settle this. We're going to have a showdown. You get the prophets Baal. Meet me at Mount Carmel. Uh, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Meet me. Go to Mount Carmel. Meet me there. Mount Carmel is a place that had sacred significance to both the worshipers of Yahweh and the worshipers of Baal. Great place for a showdown. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. Now it echoes the words of Joshua, but there is a stronger emphasis on this. How do, because they're not, they're not just neutral here. These are people who are not just in neutral. They are serving Baal. And yet they still have it in the back of their minds. Well, yeah, we still do believe in Yahweh. Yeah. So they're trying to hold on to some belief in Yahweh, the God of Israel, because they are Israelites, of course, but Baal's got a cooler religion. It's a lot more fun. It's a lot more liberating they're enslaved to their sins and they are enslaved by their sins and through their sins they are enslaved by their king and their overlords but they think it's freedom so why do you stand limping between two opinions Baal is God, serve him. If the Lord's God, follow him. And the people didn't say a word. That's significant. See, back in the days of Joshua, when Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And everybody else said, we're going to serve the Lord too. Elijah stands before them and says, who are you going to serve? And they said, and they looked back and forth between, you're one guy here, Hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah. You're one guy. Here's Ahab and Jezebel and all their armies. And you're one guy. I don't know. So then he's got the Baal prophet says, You guys go ahead and do your thing. Here's the deal. Whatever God blesses with fire... That's the one you want to worship. I'm going to put it on Baal's home turf. Baal is the god of thunder and lightning. Fire falls from heaven. Kill me, serve Baal. You go first. Who could be to deal like that? So you've got all the true believers in Baal getting together and they've got the altar of Baal going. They've got everything. They've got these sacrifices and everything going on. And they, they start their whole routine and they start their chants and they start their prayers and they start their cutting and everything. And all of this, we can presume that all of this is at the time when Baal is supposed to answer. 
This is the season when Baal's supposed to come through. And so they feel pretty confident about all this. They start doing all of this. And then it goes along. Then nothing happens all morning long. So Elijah starts taunting them. I didn't think a man of God is supposed to taunt people. That's rude. <coughs> Elijah is taunting false prophets. Prophets do that. Real prophets do. Real prophets have a real problem with false prophets, and real prophets start getting ticky about it. And sometimes they get just downright sarcastic. And Elijah's up there saying, Well, um, cry louder. He, he's a god. He, maybe he's just thinking. Maybe he's relieving himself. <clears throat> maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. You have to wake him up. Just, just call louder. Keep calling. You, you can do this. You can, come on, come on. You Show us something here. They cried aloud. They cut themselves. After, they are going into ecstatic stuff and they are, they are doing the, the things that idolaters even today get into when they're ecstatic dances and they are cutting themselves and bleeding all over the place and slinging blood here and there. Everything is going on. And uh, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. There was no voice. No one answered no one paid attention. That is so significant the way that the writer of Kings phrases that. Nobody answered. It's not that there was no fire. No, it wasn't even that there was no fire. There wasn't even an answer. You know why? There's nobody there. The vanity of humanistic religion. Because there's nobody there. And Elijah said to all the people, come near me. Come on. And then with everybody standing around watching Elijah, in view of the failure of the Baalites, Elijah begins at the spot where the altar of the Lord has been torn down. He cleans it out. He sweeps it. And then he begins to come one by one and to bring a stone and another stone and another stone and builds 12 stones. Now remember, the kingdom is divided. The kingdom of Israel is divided and the tribes are split up. But Elijah comes back and he unifies them at this altar. Simple altar of stacked stones. And then he has this, the animal for sacrifice brought. And the animal is cut and bled. And now he's got it. And then he says, bring some water. And the water that they have brought is a huge amount. They have to be lugged from the water source, which wasn't easy to find. Remember, there's been a drought. So from a water source, and they have to lug it up the mountain and bring it up. Huge. So this is, this is a huge production as far as this goes. Everybody's attention is just riveted on this, and they drench this stuff in water. Some of you may have, may have seen the little joke that I post. You know, the, the Sunday school, uh, you know, they, they ask the, the children, say, why did Elijah have the sacrifice covered in water? And one child said, to make the gravy. That's pretty good theology, actually. thing is drenched and water is overflowing into the trench that he has built around the altar and then he stands back and he says oh Lord that your people answer me that this people may know you oh Lord our God and that you have, have turned their hearts back that was his prayer And it says, the fire fell. And everything was consumed. The sacrifice, the altar, and the water that surrounded it. That was pretty impressive. And the people said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You think? God lives. 
And then Elijah goes up, and he, you know they have a. He tells Ahab, says, "You guys, this is feast time. You guys need to eat. You guys need to have a feast. Here. Do that. Have a sacrifice to the Lord and feast." Notice the mercy, the grace that is being extended to Ahab even now. You are the king of Israel. You have sinned, but come back to me. Feast with me. Fellowship with me. I will restore. God is reaching out in grace to Ahab even now through the word of the prophet. Now's the time to have a feast. While they're feasting, Elijah goes back up and he prays. And he prays. How many times? Seven times. When the servant sees, there's going to be an old cloud over there. He says, oh, we got to get out of here. It's gonna, we're going to be. And he goes to Ahab and he says, you need to get back to Jezreel before the floods come. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. And Elijah, a great physical athlete, runs the 17-mile marathon from Mount Carmel to Jezreel and beats Ahab and his chariots and cavalry. And is standing there waiting at the door for him when the rain start flooding. And he's just watching Ahab come in. And Ahab looks at him. And then Jezebel. Now, she doesn't repent. She doesn't change her mind. Stubborn old bat. I swear I'm going to kill him before daylight. And the great champion of God suddenly is struck with fear. We're going to have to leave it there for a long time. You've been listening to the sixth of eight talks on 1 Kings. Next time, we'll see what the perplexed prophet does when things don't turn out the way he thought they should. This is Gary Nation for Insight. Thanks for listening.